Church, it's good to be with you today. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're going to be continuing in the Gospel of Matthew today. During a difficult season, during a season where everything seems unpredictable, and we're all wondering, okay, what terrible thing is going to happen next, right? Congratulations, church. You've made it to level 18 of Jumanji. I mean, chapter 18 of Matthew. During such a difficult and unpredictable season, I don't know about you, but for me, it's been refreshing and it's been renewing to experience God's word that is stable and it's unchanging. But at the same time, it's living and it's active to meet us exactly where we're at. And so let's be met by God's word today in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. At that time, it says in verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, at what time? What's, what's been happening in the gospel of Matthew so far? Well, a few things. First, Jesus has been telling his disciples that he is the king that they've been waiting for. But, but he's not a king who is going to conquer Rome in order to establish an earthly kingdom, but that he's a king that's going to suffer and he's the king that's going to die. That he's not a conquering king, but a suffering servant. The conquering king is coming later. But this is all outside of the disciples' paradigm. A king who's going to suffer. But as a patient teacher does, Jesus patiently and he repeatedly taught this truth to his disciples over and over and over again. And he had just told them once again in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. But it seems that their great distress was short-lived because soon after, soon after they're found arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. From hearing from their Lord that he's going to suffer and die one moment to arguing about who among them is the greatest the next moment. Perhaps they were saying, hey, Peter, James, and John, why you guys? What's so special about you guys that you got to go up the Mount of Transfiguration? What was it about Peter that Jesus repeatedly singled him out, even though it was just as much for correction as it was for praise, right? And remember last week, the temple tax collectors, who did they go to? They went up to Peter, right? They went up to Peter to ask, 
whether Jesus would pay the tax. Even the outsiders were seeing Peter to be their leader, their spokesperson. Was it really because Peter was the greatest? Knowing Peter, I'm pretty sure he was making a case for it, right? It's a sad fact whenever we experience something amazing from God, we're more prone to think how wonderful must we be rather than how wonderful must he be to offer any of us such grace. The disciples were thinking that maybe in this kingdom that Jesus is setting up, that there's going to be an inner cabinet, a VIP seating area, right? And so the disciples were arguing over the seats. Who was first? Who was second? Who was third? Who would make it in this VIP club? And who would sit at Jesus' right hand and his left? This was something that so dominated the disciples' minds that even after Jesus corrects them here in today's text, James and John are going to pull Jesus aside one more time, literally right as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem to die on a cross, they pull him aside one more time to ask Jesus, will you grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left? What were Jesus' disciples so desperate for? What were they pursuing so desperately after? Greatness. They were after greatness. So we're going to be talking about the pursuit of greatness today. First, the greatness that we want. Second, the greatness that Jesus wants for us. And third, how do we get it? The greatness that we want, the greatness that Jesus wants for us, and how do we get it? First, the greatness that we want. The greatness that we desire and are in pursuit of every day, both in the church and in the world. The greatness that we have a universal bent toward, whether believer or unbeliever. What was the kind of greatness that the disciples were arguing after? Look at verse 1 again. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Notice, they weren't discussing what does greatness look like in the kingdom of heaven? But who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Not what are the qualities, the acts of faithfulness that make you great in the kingdom of heaven? But they were arguing over rank, but they were arguing who's number one? Was it really Peter? Who's number two and three? Was it James and John? And why those guys? And what about Bartholomew? Why doesn't Bartholomew ever get any street cred? Jesus had just as equal, equally called and commissioned the other nine disciples, right? The disciples' concern wasn't actually greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Their concern was over comparative greatness. In other words, not who is great, but who is greater. Not who is great, but who is greater. Am I greater than you? Are you greater than me? If so, why? And isn't this exactly what we are after in this world? What this is showing us is that, that the thing that we are so prone to pursue and go after in this world isn't really greatness, but it's greaterness. And what is at the heart of that? Not just a desire to be good, but a desire to be better than the next person. Not just a desire to have something, but a desire to have something more than the next person. Not just a desire to be great, but a desire to be greater 
than the next person. What is that called? That's called pride. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes, pride is by nature competitive. Pride is something that is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next person. You may think you are proud of being successful or intelligent or good-looking, but you really aren't. You're only proud of being more successful, more intelligent, and more good-looking than other people. And when you are in the presence of people who are more successful, more intelligent, and more good-looking than you, you lose all pleasure in what you had because you really had no pleasure in it. You were just proud of it. Pride is the pleasure of having more than the next person, being more than the next person. Being happy because you're successful. That's not pride. If God has made you successful, you should be happy and thankful. But how do you know that what you're feeling is really thankful happiness and not sinful pride? You'll know it when you encounter someone more successful than you and your happiness suddenly goes away. That's when you can see that you weren't really happy because you were successful, but you were happy because you were more successful than the next person. We live in a comparison culture, don't we? You love your family, you're happy with your family, you're content with your family, but then one day you're scrolling through Instagram and you see a family and you think, whoa, that family looks really happy. That family looks happier than our family. Look at all their kids smiling at the same time. They're so matchy. And look at the beach in the background, the beach. And you all of a sudden you think, what is wrong with my family? My kids never smile and we never go anywhere, right? Not just having something good, but having something better than the next person. That's what we're after. That's the type of greatness that people are so desperate for in this world. So if that's the greatness that we're after in this world, what is the greatness that Jesus wants for us? What is, the, what is the true greatness that Jesus wants for us? Well, first of all, is greatness even something that Jesus wants for us? Yes, he does. Jesus wants you to be great. Notice Jesus is doing something very profound here. Jesus isn't saying to his disciples, what in the world are you arguing about, right? How dare you desire to be great? Don't you know that you're just lowly sinners? You're nobodies and I'm the only one? I'm the only one that's great? No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus isn't correcting their desire for greatness. Nowhere does Jesus anywhere criticize a person for pursuing greatness, meaning, or significance. After all, God created us in his image, remember? There's an irreducible glory and greatness about each of us. God created us to be great and significant. So the pursuit for greatness isn't what Jesus is correcting here. What Jesus is correcting is the pursuit for greaterness. He's calling out our sinful pride and our proneness to always compare me versus you, what I have versus what you have. Jesus sees his disciples' desire for greatness as a good thing a good thing that has been distorted and made ugly by the sin of pride. And instead of destroying their pursuit altogether, what he's going to do is to say, let me show you what true greatness looks like. 
Now, in a season like we're living in, I know that the whole concept of greatness may seem totally tone deaf. What are you even talking about, greatness? We're just trying to survive, right? We're just trying to get the bills paid. We're just trying to fix up the house that the snowpocalypse destroyed. We're just trying to survive virtual schooling. We're just trying to get through the political turmoil without losing our sanity. We're just trying not to die. We're just trying not to die from COVID, right? Who cares about greatness? But perhaps in God's wisdom and in his kindness, he has led us into this very season so that our lives might be disrupted so that our lives might be truly disrupted from its previous trajectory, so that we might take inventory of our lives. More than ever, more than ever now, right? We're all facing some sense of our own mortality. More than ever, all the things that seem so secure and so unchanging now somehow seem out of control and up in the air. Maybe you've been in a career that you thought you would be in for the rest of your life, but it's been disrupted, right? And you're thinking, what's next? Maybe your health that always seemed to be there and dependable, it seems so fragile right now. That's what I'm personally going through. Or maybe you had your kids and your family schedules and priorities all figured out and it was just set on cruise control and you were thinking, just, just go this way, go, go along, along this plan and it'll be great but it's all disrupted now. Church, don't you see in so many ways, this is God's grace to us? Because what if the life that we've been living on cruise control, what if the previous trajectory of our lives that we set for ourselves and we were pursuing hard after, maybe it might have led to more money, more success, more applause of men, more family vacations, but what if it wasn't leading to greatness, true greatness, the kind that Jesus has in mind for you. If your life indeed was on such a path, wouldn't you want God to move heaven and earth and cause pandemics and do whatever he has to do in order to disrupt it? Well, church, maybe he has. Maybe that's what he's been doing for his people. What pity. What torture of the soul would we feel if we came to the end of our lives and we thought, is this it? What if we never experienced the grace of God just halting and disrupting our lives sometimes and we get to the end of our own little plans that we've set for ourselves and we think, oh no, I've wasted it. I've lived it all wrong. Oh no, I've wasted it. What have I done with this one precious life? Church, God wants us to come to the end of our lives and feel deeply that we lived it well, that we didn't waste it, that we made our one life count. He wants us to live our lives in such a way that at the end of it, we're able to say that it was great truly great. He wants us to live a life that he's able to look at and say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
And may our God disrupt and interrupt and shake up our lives as many times as he needs to so that we can get on that trajectory, the trajectory towards true greatness, the true greatness that he wants for us. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing for his disciples. Look at verse 3. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus say in verse 3? He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn. Unless you turn. What's he saying? He's saying, my beloved disciples, you need to change the current trajectory of your life. You need to turn. And unless you turn, you will never enter my kingdom and experience the kind of greatness that I have for you. He's disrupting. He's confronting their lives and saying, you need to turn. The trajectory of your life needs to change. Change to what? What is the true greatness that Jesus wants for us? He says, unless you turn and become like children. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in Mark's account, it tells us, Mark 9, 35. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be first, you must be last of all and the servant of all. He's saying the path, the trajectory that leads to true greatness in my kingdom comes not from the pride that just wants to be greater than the next person, but from the humility that makes you want to be lower than the next person. And this is exactly what Jesus modeled for us. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. He's saying that true greatness comes not from moving up the ranks of life so that you can position yourself to be served by more and more people, but from moving down the ranks of life, even down to the rank of a child, so that we can position ourselves to serve more and more people. He's telling his disciples and he's telling us that we got it all wrong, that the path to true greatness is not up, but it's down that the measure of our lives will not be determined by how many people we got to serve us. But the measure of our lives will be determined by how many people that we got to serve. This is the upside down nature of God's kingdom that's utterly different from man's kingdom. And so lastly, how do we get it? How do we get this true greatness that Jesus desires for us. How can we turn? How can we change the trajectory of our lives in such a way as not to waste it? How do we do it? Well, Jesus called to him a child, and he put him in their midst and said, you have to become like this. You have to become like a child. You have to put your pride to death and humble yourself like a child. Then you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus isn't shallowly sentimental about children. We know, we know, and especially parents know, that kids are sinners just like everybody else. I know mine are, right? 
And so Jesus isn't presenting an idea that children are pure and innocent and, and righteous and that's how we have to be. He knows better. He is, however, presenting some marks, some traits of a child that will help us on this trajectory towards humility and servanthood. Maybe we can say that Jesus is calling us to a child-likeness, not a child-ishness. There's a difference. So let's talk through some childlike qualities, some traits of their humility together so that we can apply it into our lives. First, why is Jesus saying that children are humble? Because they have no resumes. Because they have no resumes. They come from a humble place. They have no portfolios or lists of great accomplishments or achievements. They don't have it. In other words, a child finds no confidence in their resumes before God because they have none. What confidence would you have? What confidence do you have that when you come to the end of your life that God's going to let you into his kingdom? You see us older people, especially people who have been Christians for a long time, we may be tempted to look at our spiritual resumes and think, well, I've been going to church 20, 30, 40 years now, right, over the course of my life, and I've probably read the Bible three or four times at least. I've gone to Bible studies, and I've shared the gospel with people, and I've led a handful of them to Jesus, and I always love, I love singing worship songs. So surely I'm saved. Surely Jesus will let me in. We look to our spiritual resumes and find confidence. But if you were to ask this child in Jesus' arms, hey, why did Jesus receive you? In a sense, why did Jesus let you in? What would they say? They couldn't say the things that we said. Nor like the Pharisees could they say, well, it was because I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I possess. What would they say? What would they say? They would just say, well, he told me to come. He told me to come, so I came. He held out his arms, so I went. That's what a child would say. And church, isn't that how you were saved? Isn't that how we made it into the kingdom? Jesus is saying, this is the way into his kingdom. Not because of our resume, but because of his resume. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, remember? Blessed is the person who has no resume. Blessed is the person who finds no confidence in their accomplishments, but only in Christ's accomplishments. Blessed is the one who boasts not in themselves and what they've done, but the one who boasts only in the cross and what Jesus has done, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling, is the path to true greatness. Unlike Peter, James, and John perhaps thinking, how wonderful must we be that Jesus only took us. But instead thinking, how wonderful must he be that he took us. We're like the worst ones, but he chose us and he invited us. What grace, what mercy. That's how we experience the greatness of entering into the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom isn't made up of VIPs. God's kingdom isn't made up of people who accomplished amazing, great things and long resumes. 
It's made up of children. Charles Spurgeon said, what kind of a kingdom doesn't have children? God's kingdom is filled only with children. A kingdom where we don't grow old, but we grow young. Another incredible thing about children that Jesus is pointing us to here is that they expect to be accepted. They expect to be accepted. They don't have resumes, but it doesn't matter. They expect to be accepted anyway. Children don't come in negotiating for their acceptance. My kids don't come with a list of accomplishments for the day. They don't say, okay, Appa, I vacuumed, I cleaned all the toilets, I cut down my screen time by 38% today, I obeyed Mama 92% today. Um, um, it's not perfect, but better than yesterday. So, what say you on my status? Am I still your son? Am I still your daughter? Well, that would be silly and heartbreaking, right? But what about us? We do good, we produce some track record of obedience, and we think, surely God will accept me. But when we sin and we produce some track record of disobedience, we think, surely God doesn't want anything to do with me. But what about children? A three-year-old walks into the room and is absolutely sure that everybody is interested in, in what they got to say, right? They're sure that everyone will find them completely interesting. My son Moses was especially this way. His theme song is Everybody Loves Me, right? Even though they might have kept their parents up all last night, even though they might have just thrown their spaghetti all over the floor, still they walk in with a nice little surprise in their diaper, totally sure of acceptance. And guess what? They're right. They're right. You see them through your sleepy eyes. You pick them up with your exhausted body. You kiss them and you clean them. You change their diaper and you pay attention to their gibberish. And there's something about that childlike heart that Jesus absolutely loves. He's saying, be like this. When we take on a heart like that, we're saying, there's nothing lovable about me, but still, that man, that man will love me. When we take on a heart like that, we're saying, there's nothing I've ever done or could ever do to deserve such kindness, to be received by some, someone who I've wronged so much, but still, that man, that man, Jesus, will receive me. When we take on a heart like that, we're saying, look at my sin, look at my filth. I should stay away. Oh, but look at his mercy. Oh, but hear his invitation. How can I stay away? Surely King Jesus will accept me. In other words, both thinking too highly of yourself and thinking too lowly of yourself will keep you from the greatness of having Jesus. If you have a superiority complex, if you think, surely Jesus will accept me, look at my resume, look at all that I've done for him, you'll never make it in. And if you have an inferiority complex, if you think, why in the world would Jesus accept me? What have I ever done for him? And so you don't go to him, you'll never make it in either. So first, 
If you want to be great, you have to be like a child. This is how you make it into his kingdom. True greatness is only found inside his kingdom, and this is how you make it in. Not thinking too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself. Not thinking about yourself much at all, just thinking about him. Not how wonderful must we be, but how wonderful must he be. Jesus is saying, you have to be like this child who has no resume, nevertheless looks to me and is completely confident that I'll receive him simply because my arms are open and I've invited him to come. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Greatness isn't about just making it into the kingdom, right? It's about living and flourishing in this kingdom. How do we live in this kingdom? There's more to the path to true greatness. Jesus doesn't just say, humble yourself like this child, but he says, receive such a child. Receive such a child. And he gives a grave warning for those who don't. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus is saying, in the way that you've been received by me, receive others. Remember, Jesus says in Mark's account, if you want to be first, be last. That's where true greatness is found. He said, you want to be great? Be the servant of all, especially those who have no abilities or skills on a resume to be able to pay you back, right? Like children. He says, receive such a one. In other words, don't just serve people that you can benefit from. Serve people that can never, ever pay you back. What Jesus is saying is that since we've been received, since we've been served, by Jesus, by King Jesus himself, we're now free to receive and serve everyone else. And why such a grave consequence tied to not doing it, being thrown into the sea with the, with the millstone tied around your neck? Does that mean that if we don't receive and serve others, we'll be kicked out of his kingdom and lose our salvation? No, it means that the true mark of someone who has really been served by Jesus, who has really been received by, by the kingdom, is, is a person that's going to receive, is a person that's going to serve others in the same way. He's saying kill your superiority complex. Don't look at your resume and then look at their resume and think mine is better than yours. Why should I serve you? You serve me. And he's saying, kill your inferiority complex. Don't look at your resume and think, how in the world could I ever serve anybody, help anybody? I'm the one that needs to be served. I'm the one that needs to be helped around here. Do you see how in both ways, through our superior and our inferior view of ourselves, we're ultimately trying to exempt ourselves from serving others? But Jesus said serving others is the pathway to true greatness. Serve others the way that you've been served. Receive others the way that you've been received. We've been served by King Jesus. That ought to humble us from our high positions. And we've been received by Jesus. That ought to lift us up out of our low position. 
the significance of our lives, the greatness of our lives, the worth of our lives, whether we made it count or not, will be measured up against this word of Jesus and the example that he set. My life, your life, whether it's truly great or not, will simply be measured by this one question. Did you serve people? Did you serve people in the way that Jesus served you? Did you receive people in the way that Jesus received you? Or did you seek to be served by people? Church, let's redeem the season where God has disrupted our lives. Let's take an inventory of our lives on its current trajectory. On the current trajectory, where's your life headed? What's the goal of your life? To be served or to serve? Does the pathway of your life line up with the greatness of the life that Jesus lived? who did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taken upon the form of a servant. And he humbled himself, it says, yet again. And he obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we might be served, so that we might be received into his arms as sons and daughters, as children. Church, to serve, not to be served, to be the servant of all. Let's make that the trajectory of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, nothing in our hands do we bring. Only to the cross we cling. Lord, let us not find confidence in ourselves, our own accomplishments, our own achievements, but be humbled by Christ's accomplishments, the greatness of who he is. And if we've been served by one such as him, Lord, let us that humble us. Let us be liberated by that to serve everyone, to become less. Less of me, Lord, more of him. Father, let us be a people, let us be family, let us be a church that receives, that receives the least of these. Because that's how we were when you received us. Father, make us a people that doesn't desire so much to be served because we've already been served. Let us be a people that serves. Less of me, more of you, Lord Jesus. Amen.